Amen. I love that song. It must have been about 30 years ago, and I was uh, leaving Oklahoma City on a Monday to go preach somewhere. I, I don't remember the details. I just remember that we were, there was something going on, some kind of burden that I had that I was concerned about, wondering if I should even leave and go preach where I was going. And somebody had given me a CD, or may have even been a cassette back then, I'm not sure. And there's a generation that have to have that cassette explained, but still, I'm going out there, and it was Gold City Quartet, and uh, they sang, first time I heard, it's under control. And so I got out about to El Reno, Oklahoma, and going past, and that song was on, and I was crying and shouting, and uh, yes, shouting loud, and just having a time. So I went on to the meeting and said, it's under control. It's under control. How many circumstances and situations of life have we fretted about, worried about, stewed about, when all we had to do was just give it to His control. I love that song. Thank you, ladies. Uh, appreciate it very, very much. Thank you, Pastor, for the invitation to be back at Canaan Baptist Church. And for those of you who have not met my wife yet, maybe in Sunday school, Sandra, would you stand, please, right here? Don't give me a dirty look. Just go ahead and stand. And uh, this is my wife of 57 years, and I'm so thankful for her. And we are thrilled to be here. Well, thank you for that. <clears throat> we are in the 95th Psalm today. If you'd open your Bibles there to the 95th Psalm. If you can hear while you're turning there, I want to encourage you. I did this in Sunday school hour. Possibly some weren't here. And I encourage you this afternoon, take 10 minutes, you can do it in 10 minutes, and read Genesis 27 and 28. 10 minutes. 15 if you take your time. Genesis 27 and 28. How many of you remember the song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder? Does anybody grow up like, we are climbing? I sung that from the time I was a little kid growing up, having no idea what in the world I was singing about. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We're going to preach about Jacob this week. And uh, the title of the sermon tonight is, We Are Not Climbing Jacob's Ladder. <clears throat> so uh, you'll see what that's about if you'll read up this afternoon. Familiarize yourself with chapter 27 and 28. And we're just going to preach out of chapter 28. But I do believe that uh, the Lord has given direction here on this and that uh, it will be beneficial to give our attention to this incredible account of the life of Jacob. The 95th Psalm this morning, normally we might stand and read the Psalm. We're not going to do that. I'm going to have you just remain seated and we're going to work our way through the Psalm. <clears throat> From time in the Psalms, uh, particularly the 113th Psalm, this Psalm, the 96th Psalm, the 46th Psalm, some psalms that have really been speaking to my heart of late, I came to this conclusion. Now, this is not over anybody's head. It's nothing profound other people haven't thought of. It's just something that came to me while I was considering the messages the, uh, of these psalms and what they are saying. That in the most perilous of times, how many of you believe we might be living in perilous times? that in the most perilous of times, one can do nothing greater than focus on God. 
one can do nothing. In, in the most perilous of times, perilous, has to do with danger. It has to do with troublesome upheaval, turmoil, confusion. And in the most troublesome times or the most perilous times, one can do nothing greater than focus on God. This psalm definitely helps us with that. And the psalm begins not unlike many other psalms that have to do with praising the Lord. If you look at verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. <clears throat> let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. And so again, there are no surprises for most folks that are uh, Bible readers or familiar with the Word of God at all. No surprises here that it is right that we do what we've been doing. And that would be singing praises to the Lord. Calling attention to the kind of God He is, to what He's revealed about Himself, to the favorable attributes of God, which is the only kind of attributes He has, is favorable attributes. To call attention to it and by song to what? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord to come with thanksgiving and, and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. So again, the Lord is worthy of that kind of praise. And then in verse number 3, He gives us the reason why He is worthy. There are many. We could expound upon it the rest of the day. But according to our text here, He said, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Now, one thing we understand about God in the Old Testament, you'll see where the word God or Lord is in all capital letters. And you know that's a reference to His name, Jehovah. And Jehovah has to do with the fact that He is the self-existent, self-sufficient One. He is God alone. There's not another. I like it in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is chiding the people because of their pursuit of idols and false gods. And God is saying, I am God. I'm God alone. If there were another, would I not know it? And certainly if there were another, He would know it. But there is not another. He is God and He is God alone. And He said, for He is a great God and a great King above all gods. Well, if there are no other gods, what does it mean He's a great King above all other gods? Well, many of you recognize, I'm sure, that when you read the word gods or God, little g, it is in a reference not to a deity, but to a ruler or someone that has authority. Someone that may be in a position that God placed them in, like Nebuchadnezzar, whom he called his servant. But we know Nebuchadnezzar was not a God-fearing man. And then the, the story about Pharaoh or the one about Herod in the book of Acts that was eaten up with worms because they were praising him like he was some kind of deity and he received it. And so we understand that there is no other God. Somebody said, but they're gods of the heathen. What's that talking about? Well, the gods of the heathen exist in terms of deity, exist only in their imagination. There's no reality to it. God is God alone. God is, and he is God alone. And the Bible says he is a great king above all gods, which simply here has to do with the fact that he is over 
all the rulers, take some of the greatest rulers the world has ever known among men, and God is greater than them, obviously. I mean, he is high above the heavens. He is high above the nations, the Bible says in the 113th Psalm. And so God is above, high above all the rulers uh, known to man. In all of history, there's none like God. So he said, now let's make a joyful noise to him and let's praise him with psalms. And let's do this because he is a great God. Boy, you missed an opportunity right there to say amen. Uh, he is a great God and he is a great king. He is, has authority over all gods. Now look down in verse number uh, four. In verse four, continuing to talk about the greatness of God, he says, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. Now he moves into the realm of the fact that God is the creator God. And it said, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. I was thinking about um, where our daughter and son-in-law live out in Pampa, Texas. It's in the Texas Panhandle. And uh, it, the rainfall there in the Texas Panhandle is very slight every year. It's a very dry, uh, dry region, dry area. A lot of times storms develop around there and then come across Oklahoma from the Texas Panhandle but they get very little rain there. And our daughter and son-in-law have lived there for 23 years now. And he said it's an amazing thing that in all that time where the level and the lakes have been low and where the water is uh, scarce in other regions and places, he said we have never had water rationing. Never once have they said don't wash your car. Never once have they given you a certain day to water your uh, yard and such as that. And so he said, never in all these years have you had water rationing. And so he was interested in that. He wasn't from there originally and he was interested in that and found out that, like many of you may be aware, that down that west side of Texas and even all the way up to South Dakota, that down that side of West Texas, they are over an incredible, one of the largest aquifers in all the world. I think it's called the Ugalala uh, aquifer. If that's not right, it's got, I got all the letters in there. I don't know if I got them all right, but it, it is that aquifer. And under there is massive, massive amounts of water. And, and, and they fertilize, I'm sorry, they irrigate all down that stretch of the panhandle. You can fly over that region of the country and see the big circles out there where the farmers raising everything from cotton to corn and soybeans, and they, they uh, uh, irrigate there, and it all comes from that aquifer. And, and, and that thing goes all the way up to South Dakota. So it's true on the east, west, uh, west side of Kansas, in Nebraska, all the way up into South Dakota. Amazing. Somebody said, why are we talking about that? In his hand are the deep places of the earth. This is not just something that happened by chance. This is God who has made provision for the world that he created and the population of the world. I got a feeling that is also in his hand that there are resources down there that could help us all pay less for gasoline than we're paying right now if they would let us drill for that good stuff that's in his hand down there that has to do with taking care of the needs of a population like this. Don't get political. That's about as close as I can come to getting political without jumping in right there. 
but it's true. And what we have of the resources, whether it's water or whether it's the fossil fuel, as they like to call it, no matter what it is, what God has provided for, those deep places of the earth are in his hand. We were just a few weeks ago, the wife and I, in, uh, in, in Twin Falls, Idaho. We were preaching in a town called Jerome, right by it there. And so the pastor took us out west of Jerome, about 30 miles, something like that. And he said, I want to show you something out here. And so he took us and showed us you're in this real flat area of land there and not much growing around it except what is irrigated. And so you're driving along there and all of a sudden you drive up and he says, get out and we walk over to this certain place. And here is this incredible ravine. It's a canyon. It's the Snake River Canyon. And down there in that canyon, he said, now, what I wanted, you to show you, uh, wanted to show you, Brother Sam, is this. Look down that way. And he showed us down this way. We looked and, and out of the wall, the rock wall of that canyon, I, I don't know, about halfway between the level ground and the bottom of the canyon, which was very deep, you could see water just gushing out. And then look a little farther. He said, you can't see it as well, but there it is again. And then we look back this way and right up the way, there's water just gushing out of the side. And he said, this uh, water source was discovered now, by the white man in this country at the time of the Civil War, so about 1860 or somewhere right in there. And he said, it has been going like that all of this time. It all comes from an aquifer that is there so that under the ground, it is this kind of supply of water and that, uh, that water runs into the Snake River and is a part of the supply of the Snake River. I'm thinking about that since the 1860s and who knows how long before that. I doubt if it was more than a few billion years, but anyway, how long before that, that that water was running down there and running out of the side of that aquifer? Where does all that water come from? Uh, I'm sure there are people that <clears throat> know, but I'm sure I know. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. God is at work in his world that he has created. And he said, not only that, not only is uh, are the deep places of the earth in his hand. He said also, the strength of the hills is his also. Now, I, 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 you read that and you think, what am I supposed to make of the strength of the hills? I don't know for sure, but I know we've done a lot of driving even this year in the mountainous area and through the massive, wonderful mountains of Montana and into Idaho and Washington and down to Oregon and some of the hills and the mountains that are on the west side, different kinds of mountains on the east side of Oregon. I mean, we've seen mountains drove all the way down to Nevada and mountains on this side and mountains on this side. I've never looked at the mountainous regions and some of these massive hills and mountains and thought, that's weak. Have you? So what does he mean, the strength of the hills? Well, when you look at the mountains and what God has done and the mountains that he has placed where they are, then you look at them and you think about strength. You think about stability. And that's why when somebody wants to talk about something earth shaking or that's coming in the end time is uh, mountains are going to be moved. And we look at that and we say, my soul, that has to be a massive judgment. That has to be massive power. Because we look at the mountains and the hills and we think strength. And he said, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. And the sea is his. And he made it. Anybody else besides me amazed at the vast amounts of water on this planet? 
Did you ever take a trip overseas and fly for hours and hours and think about what you're doing? I have. Been to Australia, it's a long ways over there before you finally land uh, maybe in Auckland or in, in Auckland, New Zealand or in Sydney and you're in the air 13 hours or so. I remember flying on a 747 and hitting a little rough air and, and there's nothing but water. I couldn't swim across a small swimming pool, let alone make my way in the ocean. And the wings on that 747 are going like that. And I'm thinking, oh my soul, what in the world am I doing up here? There's got to be a better way to get to Australia <laughs> than this. And just think about it. The interesting thing is I met a 747 pilot, retired pilot. He said uh, his route was mostly in his career to Asia. And he said, I've flown over the ocean. How many times? He said, Brother Sam, I've even thought about this. I've looked out flying a 747 and seen the wings doing like this. And I thought, oh boy, did I choose the right career? And I thought, hallelujah. And I told him, those are my words exactly. Except I wasn't a pilot, of course. But that's how I felt exactly. What are we talking about? The vastness of the sea. What is still the mystery of the sea and, and, and what it means to the world and to ecology and everything. You look at all of this and you think, my soul, this is utterly amazing. And it is amazing. And God said, it's mine. It's mine. Don't get too excited about it. I'm just saying God said, I, I, I hold the deep places of the earth in my hand. Uh, the strength of the hills is mine also. And, and the sea uh, that's mine. I made it too. And my hands formed the dry land. My dad was a dry land wheat farmer. You got to have dry land. I said, you got to have those places where it'll grow the crops and feed the country and feed the world. And God says, everything that this world needs to exist and survive, the population that he means to be here upon this earth, I have supplied everything. That's what is being taught here, that God is the creator and he is sufficient and he is able to supply every need that a person or that mankind might have dwelling upon this earth. It all belongs to him. And you may sit there and say, well, who doesn't know that? You may sit there and say, well, why are we spending so much time talking about that? Well, the reason we're doing that is because of what it leads to. By divine inspiration, the writer of the psalm said, then, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Now, come on, he's not, he's not having an active mind and it's just flip-flopping all over everywhere. No, that's not what's going on. The Holy Ghost inspired these words and said the things he said about the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills and the sea is his and that his hands formed the dry land. He says all of that to show the kind of great God that he is and the response that the psalmist had I'm asking you this, why wouldn't you and I have the same response when he said, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So you just read the definition of worship. I'm guessing again, meaning it's probably been up there before, maybe quite regularly. Do you realize how many people are sitting in churches in America today during the worship service and couldn't define worship? If you held a gun on them, they couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Don't know what it means. 
because they had a band going and they had a lights are flashing and smoke coming up uh, out of the baptistry or wherever it might be. And they're rocking out and having a good time. And some little guy got up there uh, dressed up all preppy and said, let's all stand and worship the Lord today. And people stand up and say, we're worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Except you look at the definition and you look at what people are calling worship and you're thinking something ain't right here. Maybe I'm the only one like that, but we've we got to be thinking something is not right here. Somebody's missing something. And he said, when you consider God, you put your focus on God and the greatness of God. Shouldn't it, excuse me just a second, shouldn't it instill within us, shouldn't something be moving within us for some kind of response? Shouldn't it? I'm talking about when you see the mountains, when you see the beautiful uh, things of creation from the majesty of the skies to the sunset, to the stormy clouds and the flashing lightning across the plains and the rain that is moving across to water the earth to grow those crops and make grass out there for the cattle and the livestock and the animal kingdom. I mean, God's doing all of this. Read the Psalms, ladies and gentlemen. That's all from the hand of God. And he says, when I consider this, what is his response? He said, I want to come before the maker and bow down before him and worship the Lord and kneel down before him and worship, which is what it is. It's all about creation. Oh, no, no, no. He didn't quit. He said, for we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Hold on just a second. We're talking about further cause for worship right here. This great creator God who has the deep places of the earth in his hand. That's what he said. And whose strength uh, can be seen in the hills and whose creative power can be seen in the seas that he calls his and the dry land that his hands have formed. We, excuse me, if that's a ho-hum moment with you, or a whole hum second with you, some ain't right. Some is really wrong. Because we read in the Word of God that we're, we should have the same response as the psalmist and say, this God ought to be worshipped. We ought to humble ourselves before Him and worship Him because not only is all of that true about what He's created and what is in His hand, but we are, you and me, we who are saved, we who know Jesus as our Savior, we are the people of his pasture under his care. And we are the sheep of his hand. Oh, the word pictures there are marvelous. We're the people of his pasture. Yeah, 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 I'm a farm guy. Yes, I love it. I drive through the mountains and uh, see the ranches of Montana. And you can see, for, well, it doesn't look that far until you start looking at the cattle and seeing how small they are from the distance you are. And they're down there in these green valleys and the big mountains behind them. And I'll say to my wife, look at that. She said, yep, looks like just what I looked at a few minutes ago. And we'll see it some more. Look at that. Look at that. I look at that. And I just, I'm, I'm thinking, look what God has done. And, and, and so I think about how he's caring for cattle, horses, sheep, wildlife. He's caring for that. But I'm the people of his, I'm the people of his pasture. 
I hate to, I hate to disappoint this pet crazed society we live in, but Jesus didn't come and die for pigs and sheep and dogs and cats. Somebody help me, please. He did not come to die for the animal kingdom. He came to die for sinners like you and me. And the reason that we can call him our father and call him our shepherd and be called the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand is because of the price that was paid by this great creator God to forgive a sinner like you and me. And he says the response should be something like this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for we are the people, he is our God. He is our God. This is our God. I said, he is our God, personal God. Read the 139th Psalm. He is a very personal God for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. We're in his pasture by his choice. He meant to make us his own. He saved us on purpose. That speaks of purpose, doesn't it? For our life, he saved us on purpose. He made us his own. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Can you feel the passion when he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. It's humbling. That's what he's saying. Humility. I said humility. Almost an extinct ingredient in our culture. Almost extinct. It's going extinct. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. The more that God is excluded, the more that his word is excluded, the emptier churches get, the less services they have, the more that the spiritual fervor of our country goes down and down and down. I'm just saying, and it's not just up in Washington, D.C., and it's not just in the liberal places on the coast. It's not like that. It's in churches all across America who find it convenient to have less preaching instead of more preaching, less services instead of more services, more entertainment, less of the actual Word of God, tippy-toe around, make sure everybody's everybody okay, everybody happy. Huh? You will come back, won't you? I mean, it's, it's yeah. yeah, sick. We're at a sick point in the lack of humility. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. I pastored for 36 of the 56 years the wife and I have been in, in ministry and preaching in places like your pastor has and all over the place. It's amazing also what's happened to the invitation. And it's amazing how seldom you see what we saw here this morning, where there is an occasion to kneel down and bow before the Lord and actually worship the Lord. You, you might know this already, but in the Word of God, there is corporate worship and there's private worship. And where he says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's in Psalm 96. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Study that out. You'll see it has to do with corporate worship, which is why I think that it's kind of misguided to let's make sure everybody feels comfortable, dresses down. It's all casual. Everything's casual anymore. When really to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness has to do with the opposite of casual. Just throwing that in there. I'm not a nut. Well, I'm nuts about some stuff. I'm sure I'm not about this. Corporate worship. You don't see it real often. It's a blessing to see. 
and, and growing up in church all of my born days. And I can remember the times even since I've been in the ministry. You gave an invitation. There's nothing unusual to see people everywhere. And now even in the church I pastored, I can't even explain it. There were just less people using the altar, less people feeling the need to kneel after hearing from God, or at least having had the opportunity to hear from God and His Word. And, and in fact, in some, just a refusal. No, I'm not, no, not going to do that. I remember preaching on worship eight weeks on Sunday morning at Southwest Baptist Church. Had a family leave, said, you're trying to make us Muslims. <laughs> Boy, that was a good one. No, that's what worship means. What's really sad is Muslims know more about the definition of the word than most Baptists. So do Hindus who go into their temple and worship. I just was with in a, in a church in wherever I just came from in Washington. There was a Nepali man that got saved. And you ought to see, listen to him tell the reaction of his father when he said, Dad, I'm not going to the Hindu, Hindu temple. I'm, I'm through bowing before the Hindu gods and idols. I won't bow anymore. Bow? Yeah, that's how you worship their gods. Hindus know that. But there are people that won't bow before God. I didn't look around and see who does and who doesn't. I said, it's not my business. And neither am I trying to do what your pastor is not trying to do, make sure everybody, look, everybody's got to kneel, everybody's got to kneel, everybody's got to kneel. You, hey, come on, you can kneel and be, your mind be in the Bahamas somewhere. We're not talking about another ritual to add to the service. We're talking about an awareness of God that puts us down. That's what we're talking about. That's what the psalmist is talking about. The greatness of God. And, and, and isn't it interesting that when he said, um, oh, come, let us worship uh, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Excuse me. Before he even gets out of the verse, he said, harden not your hearts. Harden not your heart. As in the provocation, as in the time of, uh, of, of, of temptation in the wilderness. Isn't it? To me, it's just amazing that he's going along there talking about worship. He's our God with the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then he goes right there in, what is that? Verse number six. He goes right there in verse number six, in verse number seven, and says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. And I'm thinking, where'd that come from? When he says, he's talking about he is our God, we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He had just said, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. And then he turns right around and said to them, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. What did he, what did he say that for? Because he knows the nature of fallen man. Even fallen man who has been redeemed by God. There is still that propensity, that, tense, that tendency that is in the human heart to, hold it just a second, to manage your own life, to do your own thing, and not to bow and humble oneself before God. 
I'm not preaching to a church that doesn't know anything about this. I'm just marveling, Pastor, that it says right here, don't you harden your heart. Today, you, if you will hear his voice, if you're hearing the God who is, if you're hearing the nature of the God who is, if God is at all making you aware of yourself, uh, aware of his greatness and the nature of the God that he is, if God is at all speaking, don't harden your heart. Don't shut him out. Don't refuse to humble yourself. Don't refuse to bow. Don't refuse to confess. Don't, don't refuse to worship him. Why would he say that? Unless that's the bent in the human heart. Why would he say that? And then he gave us the example. Your fathers in the wilderness, they tempted me, they proved me. They saw my work and didn't believe me, didn't worship me, didn't serve me. They saw, they saw my work. Stop here just a second. Bible readers know, go back to that time in the wilderness, left Egypt miraculously. Come on, was that supernatural or what? The plagues, the parting of the water of the Red Sea, the turning of bitter water three days into sweet water so they could drink. The manna that came from heaven six days a week for 40 years. I said the manna that came from heaven. From there, from there. Heaven. Came from heaven. Down to here. That's how they ate. <laughs> for 40 years, six days a week. They saw it. They saw it. They saw water come out of a rock and flood the dry places of the desert where there was no water. Twice. They saw it. They saw the cloud by day, the fire by night. They heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. They saw the mountain of Sinai shake at the voice of God. They saw it all. And you know their response? We ain't bound. Now, if Aaron will make us a golden calf, we'll bow to that. But not to God. Anybody see a problem here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he said, today, if you will hear his voice, this, the, what God said, God says. This is the living word of God. Somebody say amen. This is the living word of God. And what God said, God says. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Let me just say this this morning in passing, almost in passing. If there's somebody here not saved and there's something in you that says you should believe in Jesus, you should confess your sins to God and call upon God to forgive you of your sins because Jesus actually paid the penalty of your sin. He bore your sins and mine in his own body on that tree. And he was there suffering for sin, for the sins of the whole world and for yours and for mine, a substitute him instead of us. And he did this to reconcile us to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you feel like, I know, I know I should get saved. I know I should get saved. Then this word is speaking to you. Don't harden your heart. Don't you tell God no. 
If God's gracious enough to deal with your heart about you being saved, don't pull the shoulder away and say, no, don't harden your heart against God. Well, I don't mean to harden my heart. No, but every time you say no to God, it doesn't soften your heart, nor does it leave your heart in the same place. It gets harder. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart like they did in the wilderness. And if you're a child of God and you know, I know God wants this in my life. I know God's trying to get me to do this, do this or do that. I know he's trying to get me to put this out of my life and put that out of my life and be totally his. I know he is. But don't you harden your heart when God deals with you? That's what he is saying. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. God said 40 years long. That's what's in our text. 40 years long was I grieved with this generation. Pastor, I get just about up to here, hearing people say, well, in the Old Testament, God's a vindictive God. Oh, I want to say, hush your mouth, please. He put up with that stuff for 40 years. Well, yeah, but then you took him into Babylonian captivity after 800 years. God is long-suffering, and God is patient, and God is gracious. And today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart, as in the propagation, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work. Forty years long, I was grieved with this generation. And God said, listen to this. He said, now I swear to them in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. So they lose their, they lose their salvation. You, you, well, you can't lose your salvation. But you know what the Israelites were supposed to rec- what they were supposed to experience when they got into the promised land. You know what they were supposed to experience? Rest. Rest. It was supposed to be a land of rest. Rest from what? Four hundred years of slavery. Rest from what? Forty years of wandering. God's going to give them their own land. They're going to live in houses. Watch this, please. They're going to live in houses they didn't build, drink out of wells they didn't dig, eat out of vineyards they didn't plant. I mean, they're going to be able to grow crops and land they didn't have to birth or bust. That's the way we'd have put it back home, busting the sod. Those plows uh, had already been in the ground. Those fields had already been tilled. It's all going to be there for them. And they're supposed to be able to go into that land and find it a place of rest. God's going to give them victory over their enemies. And they're supposed to have rest in the land. Did they? No. No. So God didn't give his promise. No, they didn't want his rest. Because they wouldn't listen to his voice. They started chasing after the gods of the land. They started, excuse me, they carried stuff from Egypt right into this holy land. And then they start adopting the ways of the people that worship Baal and the Philistines and their God Dagon and the Ammonites and their God Malcolm and on and on we could go. And they kept messing with this and messing with that one, thumbing their nose at God and would not humble themselves before them. And God said, okay, if you don't want me, you don't have rest. And if, excuse me just a second, if you read in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God said, if you don't obey my word, if you're not interested in my authority and my lordship, then he said, your feet will find no place of rest in that land. That's 2856 of the book of Deuteronomy. You can check it out. Your feet will find no place of rest. 
They go into the land. They're not there long till the Midianites came and seven years tormented them and on and on it goes. Does that have anything to do with New Testament believers? Mm, yes. We'll close with this. Go to Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I don't have time to really develop it, but it's there for everybody to see. Hebrews chapter 3. <laughs> this is amazing. He's talk, talking to the saints, the Jewish saints, the Jewish believers. The book of Hebrews is, addresses primarily Jewish believers. And he's encouraging them to do the right thing and to follow and serve the Lord and do right. Don't make the mistakes they did back in the days of Moses and on and on. Look in verse number seven. You'll recognize this. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, recognize that? It was used by the psalmist way back there. Harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my work 40 years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my way. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we just read in the 95th Psalm. So the apostle Paul brings it into the New Testament and he is saying to unbelieving Hebrews, if you're not a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to be. And then look in verse number 12. Watch this, he's not done, 312. Take heed, brethren. Now he's not just talking about the Hebrew brethren, he's talking about the saints. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today, lest, ye, uh, lest any of you be hardened through the de uh, deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of his of Christ. We if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, follow Jesus, live for the Lord, while it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. For some when they had heard did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt. And who was the Lord grieved with? Those that would not believe. Come on, saints. The apostle Paul brought it to the New Testament saint and said, Can you learn anything from them? The same apostle said, those things were written for our learning and our admonition upon whom the end of the world or the end of the age has come. And that means it's for New Testament saints as well. Do you see what God did with them? Do you see his disapproval of them? Do you see the fact that they didn't know rest? They were the covenant people. They had agreed to the covenant of God. They said they believed in God, but they didn't know his rest. Why? he didn't have their hearts. I said because they wouldn't give him their hearts. Therefore, they didn't rest. Oh, David did pretty good for part of his reign. Solomon did pretty good for part of his reign. Outside of that, go to the times of the judges, 400 years, virtually no rest. Go to the times of kings, another 400 years, very little, if any, rest. You know, there are saints, of, listen to me, there are people that know Jesus, at least that's their profession. They know Jesus as their Savior, but their life is not at rest. 
They don't know that peace, what it is to rest in Him, what it is to walk with Him, what it is to trust Him day by day by day. And they think that kind of life is reserved for some elite group out there somewhere. No, it's not. It's for whoever will not harden their heart. It's for whoever will humble themselves before Him and worship Him and acknowledge who He is. You're God. You're God. And we are what? The people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The hand of the Lord. Well, you ought to follow that through the Scripture. The hand of God. With His hand, He leads us. And with His hand, He feeds us. And with His hand, He chastens us. Oh, yeah. It, 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 we're, we're the sheep of His hand. That's so... Don't, don't do like they did. God said, I finally said of them, they do always err in their heart. It's always a heart problem. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't feel like humbling yourself before God, please listen. It's not because somebody in church did you wrong. It's not because you had a bad church experience somewhere. It's because there is a problem in your heart. Where there is no problem, how does a person keep from humbling themselves before God and bowing before Him? Here's what He said. Oh, come. Feel the passion. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. For He is our God. Father, You know who's in this room. You know who's struggling with human, selfish, pride. You know, I don't, I can't know. You know who's kicking against your will, refusing to surrender, refusing to confess a certain sin or sins, refusing to surrender to your authority and your will for their life. You, you know, you know. You know those who do in their hearts. You do. And you said that in your displeasure and wrath they don't know rest. They know turmoil, conflict, confusion. One bad circumstance after another. Conflict with people they should have fellowship with. They know all that. And they're quite sure everybody else is the problem. May the light shine on that soul today. And there be an awareness. The issue in my life and the lack of peace and the lack of joy and the lack of rest, the lack of the evidence of the Holy Ghost in my life has to do with my own heart. I want to confess that and get it right. May there be that humility of heart among us. And oh God, if there's someone that you are dealing with them about the destiny of their eternal soul, whether they go to heaven or hell, when they die and your Holy Ghost is convicting them of their sin 
and what Jesus did to forgive them of their sin. May they not harden their heart, but say yes. And let us take the Bible and show them how they can know they have eternal life. I give this invitation to you. I don't know how to give it. It's not my job to make anybody do anything. I pray that your Holy Ghost will be strong at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?